Once again, to the hour of the time. I'm your host, William Cooper. Now, as you can hear, my voice still isn't back to normal, so tonight you're going to get another interview. And this interview is with one of the giants of aviation. You're going to like this, I believe. And I would also caution you that he could be one of the biggest agents of disinformation regarding the presence of extraterrestrials visiting this earth. But to his great credit, he is the first person who will tell you that, as you will find out during this interview. participation in this interview to a minimum, and uh, I'd like to start out, John, with uh, give us some background, tell us who you are, and uh, where you came from, and what you've been doing uh, all your life up to this point in uh, <laughs> as short a period of time as you can. Well, Bill, I, uh, I'm an airline captain, I'm uh, 50 years old, the big 5-0. I've flown uh, about 160 different types of aircraft in over 50 different, different countries, I'm presently chief pilot for uh, Cargo Airline here in Nevada. We fly worldwide. Uh, I held 18 world speed records in the Learjet, uh, including around the, uh, around the world speed record in 1966. And I'm the only pilot to have ever earned and held every airman certificate issued by the FAA. And uh, among these certificates are the airline transport rating, flight instructor, ground instructor, navigator, flight engineer, dispatcher, mechanic, 
control tower operator, parachute breaker, and I hold the BATCO award, that's the Professional Air Traffic Controllers uh, Association award, for outstanding airmanship for that in 1968. Uh, as you know, uh, I flew uh, missions worldwide uh, for the CIA and other government agencies. I've flown in Southeast Asia. Uh, I flew there between 1966 and 1973. And I've had a lot of experience in uh, flying in uh, Europe, the Middle East, uh, Afghanistan, the Far East, Africa, and, and uh, both Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. Um, I flew experimental test flights with Learjet Corporation uh, and other companies. Uh, but I really like airline flying, and uh, as an airline uh, pilot, I was what they call a non-scatter, which means a pilot that flies for non-scheduled airlines, and I've flown for uh, about 20 of those over the past 25 years uh, of my flying, commercial flying career, which uh, has extended over 32 years. Uh, I went to college uh, and studied industrial design, but uh, I didn't complete the, uh, the, uh, the full course. I went on to uh, aviation as a career, and um, I was the youngest Boeing 707 captain uh, to fly in commercial service when I was 28. I ran for the uh, Nevada State Senate here in uh, Nevada. Uh, was unsuccessful in my bid, and as you know, uh, my dad was uh, William P. Lear Sr., who designed, uh, developed the Learjet executive aircraft, the uh, 8-track stereo, and was the founder of Lear Incorporated, which is now Lear Steeper Corporation, a large defense uh, contract. Uh, I've done a lot of writing. I've written about airplanes and other subjects. I was a uh, Middle East correspondent for Combat Illustrated between 1975 and 1977 when I was uh, stationed in Beirut with uh, TMA, Trans-Mediterranean uh, Airlines. And, uh, you know, my dad uh, was really interested in, in uh, UFOs and used to discuss it a lot. Uh, the great concern of the Pentagon because he was a uh, defense contractor, but my interest didn't uh, uh, come around until, oh, about 1985, a friend of mine who I had flown in Laos with came through uh, Nellis Air Force Base. He was changing from the regular Air Force into the Air National Guard and called me up, came over, and uh, we had a few beers and started talking about uh, where we'd been since we'd seen each other. and. Uh, I asked him where all he'd been uh, stationed, and one of the places he mentioned was Bentwaters. Now, Bentwaters, as you know, is an Air Force base about 70 miles northeast of London, in which we have uh, a few uh, uh, planes and uh, tactical wings stationed at. And this was supposedly a, uh, a place where a saucer had supposedly landed in 1980. And uh, I had heard about the incident, so when Greg said, you know, Bentwaters, I said, oh, that's supposedly where that saucer landed in 1980. He said, no, John, that's supposedly it did. He said, I didn't see it because I was confined in quarters. But uh, I have, a, you know, I know the guys that did see it, and he gave me the names of General Gordon Williams and <clears throat> Major Ted Conrad and Colonel Chuck Hogg. And I looked at Greg and said, you mean this stuff is real? There are saucers and aliens? He said, well, apparently so. So I kind of I thought I knew a lot about secret things and uh, secret goings on, but uh, this one I had completely missed. So I spent the next two years kind of researching around, writing letters, uh, taking field trips, trying to find out if there was such a thing uh, as flying saucers and aliens. And uh, my, my uh, trips took me to Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, uh, uh, California. 
and uh, this was towards the end of 1987. And when I got back, I wrote what became known as the infamous John Lear Hypothesis, and uh, released it to a couple of friends of mine, and they released it on a uh, BBS, and it was uh, apparently downhill from there on. But essentially, what I thought I found out was the government had been uh, uh, dealing with extraterrestrials uh, since 1964, and that apparently we did have an agreement with them in which we would uh, trade, uh, we would help them keep their uh, secret of their existence in trade for high-level technology. And that was the basis of the hypothesis. Uh, I'm not sure whether, in fact, that is, is uh, what is happening. Uh, one of the things I've tried to do is uh, file everything but not believe uh, anything. As you know, uh, Robert Ann Wilson says you are a prisoner of your beliefs, and I've really found that to be true, that if you get stuck in any one single belief, uh, you're imprisoned that. Every, everything seems to, to orient towards that belief. So I've tried to keep an open mind on, on this, whether in fact there are aliens. I don't know that for a fact, whether in fact there are extraterrestrial uh, vehicles. I don't know that for a fact, but some of the evidence points that way. Well, we know for sure that UFOs are real. That's, uh, that can be proven by a short trip of about 140 miles north-northwest. There's from no question about that. The question is whether they're extraterrestrial or not. That's correct. Uh, what what kind of credence can you put in, uh, in into the sources of your information, John? I mean, wh who are these people? Well, you have to realize that uh, it's very difficult to, uh, to establish whether somebody is telling the truth or whether he's a disinformation, aid, disinformation agent. Um, in my particular case, since I am relatively high profile uh, and have a, a famous name, I'm not sure whether that's a, a help or not, but I'm an easy target for disinformation. So, to say that I have, you know, the, the best of sources uh, would not be accurate. I might have the best of disinformation sources, uh, but I do have a variety of sources. Uh, some tell me there are, in fact, extraterrestrial vehicles up at the test site. Uh, some tell me that there are not. So what I say is, you know, uh, I try to file everything and, and believe nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, my listeners are certainly uh, used to hearing that because my admonition to them is to listen to everyone, read everything, believe nothing until they can verify it for themselves. That's very sound advice. <laughs> advice that I try to follow. Well, in a, in a period of time when there's so much uh, disinformation man, and manipulation in an effort to tear down the sovereign status of nations and bring about a one-world government, uh, it's difficult at best, even if you spend all of your time digging for the truth, to really know when you've reached it. And uh, I think everybody had better begin to understand that. Um, John, what, what are... Um, uh, what are some of the uh, the more memorable uh, moments in your dealings with this UFO business that you can remember? Some of the characters or some of the stories or, or maybe we can inject a little bit of humor into this before we get a little more serious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm trying to think. I think one of the uh, more memorable times was when I first got into this and had read uh, a book called Communion. 
and it was very interesting. As a matter of fact, I read it on a flight that, uh, that I flew from Las Vegas to Cleveland, and when I got to Cleveland, uh, I couldn't put the book down, and, and after I did uh, put it down, I couldn't go to sleep, and for some reason, I felt this was was uh, a, something real that was going on, and I'd heard of this guy, Bud Hopkins, and uh, I was based in New York at the time, so I gave him a call, and he said, yeah, come on down, and I went down to his apartment in Manhattan, and uh, we sat around for about three or four hours listening to some of the tapes that he recorded of people who had thought that they had been abducted. Now, you know, whether these were true or not, I don't know, but the, the people who were talking certainly felt it was true. And some of these uh, uh, stories they told were so poignant uh, so uh, essentially horrifying of some of the things that happened to him. It just made a real impression on me when I, when I was first got into this. It's the first time I heard of these, these kinds of stories. And sitting there with Bud was, uh, um, I, I can't say it was memorable. It sure was, uh, and it made an impression on me. Uh, another of the times was uh, I was uh, acquainted with a scientist here in Las Vegas. His name was Bob Lazar, who claimed to work at the test site. And uh, one night he took us out to see one of the uh, alleged test flights of these vehicles. He said it was going to fly just after sunset. This was March 22nd, 1989. Uh, we went out there, parked uh, our vehicle, and sure enough, about 15 minutes later, this orange glowing disc rises up from behind the mountains and performs a few maneuvers and then goes back down. I thought that was uh, uh, pretty spectacular. Bob said it was extraterrestrial, because I have no way of knowing um, whether it was extraterrestrial or man-made. Uh, you know, I, I can't really you know, comment on what it was. It was just spectacular that this thing came up, made no noise, uh, and flew around uh, at uh, tremendous speed, and then went back down. That was a pretty memorable moment. I, well, I can uh, I can vouch for that, and it is it is memorable when you see it. Uh, I've been out there many times, and have actually spent weeks in the desert uh, filming these things. And I've made two video documentaries of these craft actually in flight over the the test site. And uh, it is amazing to stand there and see them and know that this is a technology that's been completely hidden from the public, and it's in the possession of secret agencies of the United States government. And uh, who cares whether it's extraterrestrial or, or man-made? I tend to think that it's man-made myself. But it represents uh, a, a, a different science that could possibly benefit uh, mankind um, greatly. Uh, and I think that it, it's a crime to keep this, this kind of a, a thing hidden. And they are disc-shaped, and they do things that are incredible. I don't know if you ever witnessed this, John, but I've literally seen them disappear from the sky. I mean, they're not there anymore. And then reappear... Uh, sometimes seconds, sometimes minutes later, sometimes in the same spot, and sometimes uh, several miles away. Uh, have you ever witnessed uh, that type of uh, behavior? No, I've never seen that myself, but I've talked to enough people who have seen those uh, kinds of disappearances, and, and I hardly agree with you that uh, uh, we don't know whether that particular disc that I saw was man-made. There certainly are man-made ones that, that perform uh, uh, with equal... Uh, speed and dexterity, and I have reason to believe that we are much, we were much further ahead in the late 50s, and the public was led to believe when Vanguard was blowing up every other for every flight on the 
can handle pad, I think that we were very far advanced uh, in our uh, modes and method of travel. I have reason to believe that, that we were on uh, the moon uh, in the late 50s. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things that uh, Dr. Werner von Braun said at his retirement party in the late, uh, or in the uh, middle 70s, uh, was he made a cryptic statement. He said, uh, it's too bad Vanguard had to be the scapegoat. And I think what he was telling us was that he was part of a program that was so far advanced, but his name was associated uh, with Vanguard. Uh, and all people remember is that thing kept blowing up on the pad, mm -hmm. going up 20 feet, and exploding and toppling over. And I think that's what he was referring to. Well, I think that was to keep the public's attention. Uh, it's well known amongst those who really do real research, and most researchers are people who call themselves researchers that don't even know what the word means. Um, but there are several references in several uh, books and texts uh, that are not well known to the public that disclosed the existence of a secret space program that even had a director of space and was administered uh, mainly under the Navy, Department of the Navy, through DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And uh, the public, of course, was told that, uh, that NASA was the only space program when in, uh, when in fact uh, Eisenhower had established this secret space program by executive order uh, in the early 50s. Um, what have you learned about that, John? Uh, along the similar, uh, same similar lines, as a matter of fact, to keep it secret, I think that uh, between 1955 and 1958, it was illegal to mention the word space uh, in any publications uh, in the United States. They were so afraid that the public would find out how far, they, how far along they were, and only uh, with the advent of uh, Vanguard that were uh, these, these horrible uh, examples of our technology were, were uh, being shown to the public so that they would think that there, there's no possible way uh, that we could have advanced like we did. Mm -hmm. and so I, I agree with you. There certainly was a secret program going on at that time. Well, what, what brings the development of technology really home to me is my great-grandmother, who uh, is no longer living, but I remember as a boy she would tell me stories of her trip across the United States from the East Coast in a covered wagon. And her first home in the West Texas Prairie was a dugout with a sod roof. And uh, she told me stories of the Indian Wars and and um, all kinds of things. And she lived to see the development of the Boeing 707 and all the modern accoutrements of our, of our society today. And uh, I was always dumbstruck by this. I just could not imagine how people who went through that much of a transition in technology in their life could even keep their sanity, much less understand what was happening. Um, so your father made a lot of references, and I understand that he was on a television show or something. Was it in the 60s, John? Late 50s, uh, in a press conference, I think it was from Colombia, it was from South America, uh, that flying saucers are real and they were piloted by uh, highly intelligent beings. Is this the one you're referring to? Well, that's one, but the, the one I was uh, more specifically referring to was the statement he made on television. Someone asked him, uh, and I think it was on television. I'm not sure, John, correct me if I'm wrong. But someone asked him on television, um, uh, since he was involved in the defense industrial uh, establishment, 
just exactly where was the state of technology and what could we expect to see within the next uh, five or ten years. And uh, I, uh, the, the quote that I have is he said that you would be able to get into a phone booth in Los Angeles and step out in New York City. Yeah, that's correct. I think that happened in the, uh, the late 50s. It was the, uh, the television or radio program. I can't remember what. But the, isn't that, that's, the, the, a lot of people don't pay any attention to that, but I know that this man, your father, was, was on the inside uh, an, uh, of the inner circle of the people who were developing the state of the art of the technology uh, of the world. And uh, I think if he made that statement, he was talking about something that was either in the state of preliminary development or may have already been a reality. Uh, but, of course, those of us who served in the intelligence community, uh, I was in the Office of Naval uh, Intelligence, and you've been connected with the Central Intelligence Agency and the Joint Chiefs, uh, we know that in secret they're at least 50 to 100 years ahead of anything that the public sees as the state of the art of any technology. No question about it. No question about it. And, and that's why when people tell me that we don't have a, a laser scalpel that could make surgical cuts like they find on these mutilated animals that's portable, uh, I just laugh at them. <laughs> I, I don't let them know that I'm laughing at them. They think I'm just laughing because it's funny. But uh, I'm laughing because they really tend to believe that what they see is the state of the art in the public sector is really the state of the art of technology. And it's not at all. It's way behind. Well, certainly if my dad uh, wasn't, and of course we, neither one of us would probably ever know whether he was directly involved with that uh, state uh, of technology, he certainly had friends that were, uh, specifically uh, Hoyt Vandenberg, who was the original director of the CIA. Uh, he used to be around the house all the time. Jimmy Doolittle was definitely connected with the uh, SASA program. Uh, uh, he was sent over to Sweden to investigate the Ghost Rockets, and uh, he had a very heavy involvement uh, in the later uh, years with uh, with the SASA program. Uh, the people have asked me if my dad was involved in any gravity research. Of course, if it was born in 1942, and we're talking about like 55, uh, which would make me 13 or 14 years old, he certainly wouldn't have uh, told me anything. Uh, so I would uh, have no uh, knowledge of that. Uh, talking with my mother, he used to make uh, trips to Fort Huachuca, uh, and it seems that Fort Huachuca was the central area for some very classified uh, uh, technology research, possibly having to do with uh, anti-gravity, uh, but that's as far as I can uh, trace it now. If I had become interested in this subject just a few years earlier, I would have been able to talk with the chief physicist at Lear Incorporated, who was a guy named Niels Eklund, uh, Scandinavian, and a very competent guy. Is he still alive, Joe? Well, unfortunately, like I say, he died just before I got into this research, or I would have been able to find out from him some oh, really good information. But mm -hmm. he passed away, I believe, in 1982 or 83. Well, I know that you've had some contact with some of the more um, famous or infamous, depends upon which way you look at it, people in the, the so-called UFO uh, community, which I, I think is a misnomer. Um, and, and a lot of these people who call themselves ufologists, which in every case is self-appointed and requires no no uh, 
<laughs> no requirements, no education. That's right. Right. Uh, what, what can you tell me about some of these people? What can you tell our listeners? Well, it just seems that uh, uh, there's so many self-appointed researchers who spew forth uh, so much BS about uh, so much stuff that, you know, I've kind of kind of gotten out of the, the field myself to the extent that I may give one or two lectures a year, uh, that I no longer, as I did at one time, believe uh, the public should be told because uh, I don't think they would understand the, the basic, the religious ramifications uh, of what's going on. It uh, might confuse them as, as to what is really going on, and I don't think they, they can sort this out or need to sort it out on a daily basis. So that's assuming that extraterrestrials are a reality, which they may not be. Um, they definitely may not be. Yeah. Who knows? real movies and I've heard many stories. Well, I used to think that they were real. As you well know, I saw documents when I was in the Office of Naval Intelligence that said they were real. Yeah, it's possible that they are, but there's also stories of uh, people who have been abducted who have caught uh, their supposed aliens taking off masks or helmets and or helmets. And the, <laughs> turning into military personnel. <laughs> yes, I've also uh, run into those people also. And... Uh, I've looked into the, the possibility that this whole thing is a tremendous mind control operation. In order to convince the public of the world, the mass consciousness of humanity, that the Earth is being threatened by some other species from some other planet, which Ronald Reagan stated in six of his speeches during his administration, um, which is way too many times for me to believe that, uh, the, the, that it was real. It's more like just putting it into people's minds. Uh, I looked into the development of mind control techniques, and they are so far advanced that mind control is no longer experimental. It's fully operational. And uh, from what I understand, from my contacts, and from what I've been able to read and the leaks and the, the documents released under the a freedom of Information Act that that no part of mind control remains experimental anymore and that they can literally remove sections of memory as if it never occurred and put in its place a different memory as if they're running a movie in your head and they can actually uh, put in um, suggestions or uh, orders to that this will not come up, you will not remember this until uh, some outside stimulus is encountered and then the mind is overwhelmed by these incredible memories that in actual fact never happened. Um, in particular, I remember uh, reading and studying uh, mind control uh, projects by the Office of Naval Intelligence where they were actually putting together and ran an assassination bureau uh, for many years and these people who were actually the assassins were ordinary people that they would pick according to some standard formula, put them through the, the, uh, the brainwashing experience uh, where they would implant in their mind the ability and the desire to kill upon order. And they would go about their normal everyday business not even knowing that they were part of this until the stimulus was given to them and they were given an order to carry out an assassination and they would go and do this. Uh, what do you know about all this, John? Are you there? Yeah. What, what can you tell us about these mind control programs? 
Well, you're 100% rec- uh, correct. It works just like that. I was reading a uh, book called Operation Mind Control just the other day, uh, in which a guy asked for people, um, uh, military people, who felt that they had been subject uh, to mind control experiments. And there was a uh, Air Force um, officer who felt that uh, uh, he was having some problems in later life after he retired. And it evolved from the fact that uh, his whole career, uh, or at least the uh, five years that uh, he thought he was stationed in Guam running a weather station, uh, when he retired, he was honorably discharged, and he was shown uh, a, a whole raft of commendations and medals that uh, he had earned. And uh, there was no explanation for that. And he said, uh, uh, could I have those? And they said, no, these will be withheld until uh, you need them. And at, the, at that time, you know, it will be explained to whoever uh, needs to see these uh, what exactly happened. So this guy obviously did a lot more than, than he was aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, up at the Nevada test site, uh, certainly this mind control works uh, to a, a great degree, whereas people can remember flying up flying back, but they can't remember what they did. The mind control is so advanced uh, that it doesn't, uh, they have it to the point where it doesn't bother people when they come back, say, to Las Vegas and they uh, interact with their children and their wives and lead a normal daily life. They don't question that they can't remember what they did. Uh, it's, it's highly, highly advanced. Uh, we were working with an uh, a engineer, a female engineer who worked with Lockheed who uh, was having just a little bit of problem because she couldn't remember a lot of what she did during the day. Uh, and I think that they were uh, not too successful in the mind control program there because uh, she did realize that there were same things going on. But it is highly, highly evolved. People would be just shocked to know how far advanced it, uh, it has become. Well, it's time for a break, folks. Don't go away. We'll be right back, right after this very short pause. John, when I first started my crusade, I guess that's what you can call it, to try to uh, wake people up, um, I had a tremendous faith in the American people that all that had to happen was for someone to open their eyes and and show them that that the normal everyday world that they live in is really a fantasy land, and and then they would sort of take it from there, and it's not happening. Um, A lot of people are waking up. Uh, um, I have to give those people credit uh, because uh, back in 1988-1987 when I first uh, was looking around in 1988 when I first came public with what I knew, uh, sometimes I would travel a thousand miles to sit in the living room and talk to three people if I could find three people that wanted to sit in the living room and listen to what I had to say. And now, uh, when I go to a city, sometimes I can fill places as large as the Salt Dome uh, with people who are interested in, in wanting to know what's happening. But when you consider how many people are there and how many people in the city aren't interested and don't want to know, then it doesn't look like such a big accomplishment. Uh, do you think we're going to wake up this country? Do you think we're going to affect any kind of a change at all? I don't think so, Bill, but you know, I applaud the people who go out there and try. Uh, I don't try anymore because I found that people are satisfied with the information that they receive reading the paper in the morning, listening to Dan Rather on the news at 5 o'clock, and then watching Wheel of Fortune at 7.30. And most people are satisfied that they get about all they need to know from that kind of information. It's discouraging 
because there, there's some great, great human beings that would like to to make a change. But uh, I just have to say that uh, that I am not an optimist at this point. Well, I'm, I'm slowly getting to that not an optimist point also, but I have to keep trying. Every time I look at my little daughter, uh, I can't stop trying to make this a better world because I know that if I fail, she's going to be somebody's property. Uh, and that's what's coming. I'm convinced of it. Um, everything, all the research that I've done is shows me that instead of uh, going forward in our evolutionary uh, path, we're we're at a point where we've reached the highest pinnacle of all man's striving throughout history, uh, where, where with the establishment of this nation, man actually became a sovereign king in his own right, uh, able to walk in a divine state of grace on this earth that God gave us. And no time in history had that ever been true before. And it still isn't true today in any other nation on this earth except this country, the United States of America. And what I see in the future is a step backward, back into slavery, uh, in, a, in a totalitarian, socialist world government, and all of these things that are happening around us, I see leading us right into that, uh, including the election of uh, Mr. Rhodes Scholar Clinton here, <laughs> is just a continuation uh, along that path. Uh, correct in that, and uh, I wish there was something we could do, but. I'm not sure uh, what it is. I certainly applaud your effort to, to continue on and try and do something, but uh, uh, I, I've more or less given up myself. If you could show me the path of how we could affect the numbers of people we would have to do in the short time we have to make a difference, I would certainly uh, rally behind you. Well, time, time is short. Uh, it's so short that people call me and they write me letters and, and they, they uh, one woman wrote me a letter and it was about six pages long and it was all about her, her being upset with me because um, I had said that most Americans are stupid over the radio and I use that term quite often because I found that most Americans are stupid and the definition of that word is mentally crippled uh, in many cases it's not their fault that they're stupid but nevertheless they are and she was so upset with that word that I knew that, that uh, I had reached her <laughs> and, and had made her angry enough that maybe she would begin to, to look at it, even though she was voicing great displeasure about it. It's, you see, it's my theory that if I say Americans are stupid over the radio, only the stupid Americans will get angry when they hear it. <laughs> I would prefer to say that well, it goes far beyond ignorance. John, ignorant is when you don't know about something. You've never had an opportunity to learn. Nobody taught you. That's right. Stupid is where you have the information and you don't know how to put it together. You don't know how to think originally. You believe what you're told all the time without question. And that's where most Americans are. They don't question anything. Nothing at all. And that is really bothersome <laughs> to me. <laughs> They have a democracy. Most of them don't even know the difference between a democracy or a republic. Uh, That's correct, and they don't understand that the increased use of the word democracy is leading us into socialism because democracy is just another word for socialism. Right. It's where everybody has a vote and the majority get their way and they always vote themselves all the benefits until there's nothing left and a dictator rises up to take over. 
uh, and clear everything out. And that's, that's always where socialism leads, and that's where we're going uh, right now. John, what are you uh, what are you engaged in now? What kind of projects are are you doing now? Really, no projects. I fly a seven two seven for a cargo airline. We uh, have a contract out of Miami. We run uh, fertilized chickens to uh, Valencia. Uh, other than that, I'm working on uh, my garden as usual. You know, when you're here, I like to have the, the greenest lawn on my block, and, uh, and I. Uh, like to uh, do all kinds of gardening projects. Other than that, it's, uh, I'm quite heavily involved in computers. I got involved in computers a couple of years ago, and I have a you know a PC, and uh, uh, it's mostly to write. And also, my wife has a uh, uh, actor and actress casting business. We cast extras here in Las Vegas for the movies that come from Hollywood. So I computerize your business, and uh, I mess around with that. But uh, that's about the extent of my. Uh, extracurricular activity. Hmm. Well, what do you foresee for the immediate future? You got any predictions for us? No. As a matter of fact, I'd have to agree with a German interviewer who came over here and said that I was uh, a great researcher but a horrible prophet. <laughs> several times, and absolutely within a year, some information is going to come out, and then I said in 1991, some information was going to come out, and it just never seemed to happen. So well, some information is always coming out. Yeah. Always coming out, but I meant something like something, something big. Huh? I've, I've always been wrong, so I've quit making any kind of predictions. I just sit back and uh, watch with, with great interest. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think anything like that's going to happen until they're ready to actually put the chains on our legs, and then they'll, they'll cause so many things to happen and so many revelations to come out. And, most of it will be deception and lies that everybody will be so confused they'll be um, totally deactivated. They won't even be able to think, much less act. Uh, that's what I think is going to happen. Well, I just want enough time to call all my friends and say, I told you so. <laughs> also, when you learn something, I want to be one of the first ones to go because I want a lower bunk and I want to get the blanket confession. Well, I understand they've already got my name on the door. <laughs> so... Uh, that is, if they let me get that far. John, I'm going to slip one in on you here. Who is Lars Hansen? Uh, Lars is, uh, was a uh, supposed researcher who came and lived at my house um, uh, as was a carpenter. Uh, did a lot of projects around my house in uh, about 1988. Uh, spent uh, three or four months here and um, left. I think he lives in Florida now. He was greatly interested in the Kennedy uh, assassination. He had made a tape uh, which purported to show that uh, uh, Greer, that William Greer, the driver, turned around uh, and shot Kennedy. Um, we showed that tape uh, quite a few times. I went back uh, and uh, actually paid Robert Groden uh, $200 to see the original of that tape, which then I since found out was not an original. It was a copy uh, of the Time Life film. I went back uh, and uh, actually paid Robert Groden uh, $200 to see the original of that tape, which then I since found out was not an original. It was a copy uh, of the Time Life film. I went back uh, and uh, actually paid Robert Groden uh, $200 to see the original of that tape, which then I since found out was not an original. It was a copy 
uh, of the Time Life film, um, and uh, it, it didn't make it any clearer. Uh, anyway, Lars uh, promoted that tape, and then, oh, maybe the end of uh, 1989 changed his mind that, you uh, know, he didn't feel that, that uh, Greer did shoot Kennedy and retracted all his statements, and uh, I think he lives in Florida now. Back to Mars, uh, you know, I have a great deal of respect for people who uh, change their minds uh, based on uh, new input and are willing to admit that they made a mistake. I can't remember how many times I've done that. Uh, what I disagree with is people who change their minds and, and say that they uh, they never believed that in the first place. Uh, in Mars' case, uh, uh, he says he never did believe that uh, the Greer shot Kennedy, but. For those people who, who really uh, said one thing, like uh, a particular aspect of uh, aliens are real and flying thoughts are real, and who have come to believe that maybe that's not the case, are, are have the guts and the moral fortitude to get up and say, yeah, I was wrong, here's what I believe now. I think that takes a great deal of courage. Well, that's, uh, I don't know how much courage it takes, but that's certainly what I've been. Uh, I think that uh, that I was intentionally shown documents when I was in the Office of Naval Intelligence that convinced me that extraterrestrials were real. And I really believed that. And uh, when I first came public, I, of course, I told everybody what I saw in those documents. And I told them I didn't really know um, the, the reality of it, but that's what the documents said. And I had no reason to question those documents. But John, when I first really began doing real research, I mean real research, and, and, and quit believing what, what I saw and what people told me, and really started digging into it, the first thing that I found when I did a computer search of documents in a library uh, for anything about extraterrestrials or other species from other planets or anything like that, it popped out a document from 1917, which was the text of a speech given by John Dewey to the Japanese Imperial delegation headed by Viscount Nishii in New York City. And the first thing out of his mouth, the first sentence in the speech was, and I printed this in the, in the appendix of my book, was, quote, someone once told me that the best way to unite all humanity in a one-world government and do away with wars forever is if we were attacked by some other species from some other planet, unquote. And uh, that was like somebody hit me between the eyes with a sledgehammer. And I felt that all through my body. I was just shaken to the core. And here I was looking at the evidence that somebody had thought of doing this as far back as 1917. And I knew instantly that they had the technology to make us all believe it if they wanted to. And then I've been going back and looking at when did all this start? Why, John, it started the minute that President Truman signed the United Nations Treaty and the Senate passed and Truman signed the, the UN Participation Act. And the first man who reported flying saucers was an ex-intelligence officer flying in a plane up in Washington who saw, or says he saw, nine uh, disc-shaped craft come out of Canada and then go back in the same direction and he described them as inverted saucers and of course the press picked this up and called it flying saucers now if you go back like I did and research the newspaper headlines of today they were all talking about the United Nations being the salvation of mankind and that all men would come together in one world government 
and there would be no more wars. And then you see Hollywood begin to crank out all the flying saucer movies. And what's the most famous one? No, the day the earth stood still. The classic of classics. And it's about a man from another world who comes here with a message of peace. And, uh, and he's surrounded by guns and he's shot in the... And uh, the message was simply uh, that we have to have a one-world government and do away with guns and arms and, and national boundaries. And, and, and that's been the message ever since. Um, have you ever attended a Stanton Friedman lecture? Uh, no, I haven't. I'll have to send you a tape. Uh, in his lectures now, he includes uh, a portion about how the world has to come together and unite as one, and that we have to get rid of all weapons and that the world should be ruled by a council of wise men. It's the same old utopian story that the Illuminati's been preaching throughout the history of the world. And it's impossible to bring about because man himself is flawed. Uh, what do you think about all this? Well, I think you're correct. Uh, uh, I, just, I just disagree with the, with the one world government. I just am not going for it myself. Well, it's... Uh, it can't be good because we're being manipulated into it instead of being allowed to be a participant in what it's going to be or how it's going to come about. Uh, we're being herded like a flock of sheep or cattle, uh, which reminds me, I've stopped calling people people anymore. They're sheeple in my vocabulary, at least the ones who, who aren't awake yet. Uh, the ones who are awake are heroes in my eyes. I, I laud them. I appreciate them. I, uh, all my efforts are in their directions, and uh, hopefully, if we all work together, we can wake up more of the sheeple and turn them into uh, real people, <laughs> I hope. Uh, John, if there were something that you would... Well, let me put it another way. Inside each and every one of us, there's something that we want to do more than anything else in the world. What is that for you? Well, before I die, I want to be able to go to Carl's Jr. and drive up there and order a Carl's original hamburger and not have them ask me if I want a piece of cheese on it. <laughs> not bad. <laughs> not bad. What do you think about the, the cattle mutilations, John? Well, as you know, uh, Linda Howe, who did the, uh, wrote uh, Alien Harvest for uh, the CBS affiliate in Denver, uh, and I did a few field trips together and had a, uh, was able to talk to her quite a bit about it and, and uh, thought I knew a lot about it. Uh, it's been very interesting going on for quite some time. Uh, it's obviously possible that we have the technology to do that. Uh, I suspect everything and everybody. Who's really doing it, I don't know. Why they're doing it, I don't know. I kind of suspect that, that, uh, that AIDS comes into the question somewhere. But the more I find out, the more I find out, the less I know. That's exactly what has happened to me. <laughs> Every question that I have, I have answered that I have found the answer to, there's been 20 more questions posed. 
So now I'm almost hesitant to have an answer, a question answered, because it just raises 20 more questions. Well, you know, Arizona is one of the, the greatest experimental grounds for uh, helicopter development in, in the country. Were you aware of that? No. Uh, they actually build Apache helicopters down uh, in southern Arizona. And um, there's many times in Arizona you see uh, flights of helicopters, all different types of helicopters. Recently, there's been an awful lot of black, unmarked helicopters with uh, dark windows. You can't even see in the things. Uh, but they're apparently able to change the, uh, the the density of the windows from light to dark uh, at will because you can see the same helicopter. Um, as it flies, the windows will either become opaque or, or clear. I don't know how they do that. Um, but I guess it could be done with some pigment that that changes color with the stimulus of electricity or heat, I don't know. But uh, coming back from visiting my parents in Texas, we were driving up Route 666 near the uh, Roosevelt Reservoir, and uh, we, my wife and I both witnessed uh, two helicopters flying that couldn't have been more than uh, 70 or 80 feet above the ground, and they were bobbing up and down according to the terrain. In other words, they obviously had terrain-following radar, and they had the, the helicopter on automatic pilot, so it was following the exact contour of the terrain. And it was amazing to watch this, and they passed no more than 100 feet in front of the car across the highway, and they made not one sound, no noise whatsoever. Now, I'd heard rumors that there were helicopters that made no noise, and this was the first time that I had ever seen helicopters that made no noise. But they were, these were helicopters. They were military helicopters, and they made no noise whatsoever. So I know that the rumors are true, that we do have helicopters that make no noise, and at night could configure themselves to look like UFOs and fly around fields and could pick up cattle without leaving footprints or signs or tracks and could mutilate those cattle and cop them back in fields. Uh, now, it's funny that uh, not too long after these 10 or 15,000 cases of animal mutilation, mostly cattle, had been reported, uh, we began to see uh, stories in newspapers about cow's blood being used in emergencies for transfusions for humans. And we began to read all these experiments that they've been doing with cow's blood, but yet we can find no research facility by the government or anybody else with enough cattle to have performed any of these experiments to come up with the, with the conclusions that they have, have reached. So I don't know the answer, and I'm not saying that that's the answer, and I'm not saying that it's the government doing it, but um, I'm very hesitant to believe that it's extraterrestrial simply because no one's ever been caught, um, mainly because of the nature of the organs and the tissue that is taken. All of it points to somebody wanting large amounts of blood and, number two, tissue samples that would tell what kind of pollution has moved up the food chain into large animals, specifically radiation. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a definite possibility. And, uh, there's no question in my mind that uh, uh, that they have these silent helicopters. Uh, I don't think, as some people say, that they're just 
very quiet. I think they are absolutely silent. Well, the ones that, that passed about 100 feet in front of our car across the highway uh, in, a, in a very rural portion of Arizona where there's hardly any people at all except Indians um, who, who probably don't even uh, care <laughs> at all. Most rural people don't care if they see helicopters. But these things made no noise, John. No noise at all. Um, I had an interesting thing happen in April. I uh, uh, ferried a, uh, an L-1011 from uh, Marana, Texas to England. And they had occasion to stay at Marana, which, as you know, was an ex-Air uh, Force base and then uh, supposedly an ex-CIA base. And I had never been there before. Uh, but I was there for, for two or three nights, and every night about like 12 or 1 o'clock, there would be the most massive uh, uh, de uh, deployment of helicopters. It was just like being in Vietnam, and I spent several years over there. And I'd get up in the morning, well, where in the hell did those things come from? And uh, the second night, I finally asked somebody, and they said, oh, they've got uh, an underground facility that they use. It comes out of the middle of the runway. And, he was very non-specific, but apparently there is a quite a large underground base under Marana, and that's the first I'd heard about it, but I never believed mm -hmm. it until uh, I stayed down there. There must be something underground because there was nowhere where else for these things to park. Mm -hmm. And I was quite familiar with, with the field that had flown in and flown out. So it's uh, we have those things here also. While I was out filming my last documentary at the test site north of you there. Uh, filming these craft in flight. We spent one day, usually we were out there all night, slept all day, but we spent one day um, and some of our party climbed up to the top of the mountain and while we were filming a helicopter came out from the about the area where the road disappears and goes into the Groom Lake area, the Groom Dry Lake area. It came out and flew around the valley and we didn't know what it was doing, um, but a, a part of the mountain on the side of the Tickaboo Valley, as you're looking from that little turnout there where we filmed uh, toward the Groom Lake facility, part of the mountain just opened up and this helicopter flew right into the mountain and the door closed and it, it didn't even look like a door. I mean, it was desert land. Uh, I was on the same mountain and I saw the helicopter uh, fly into uh, what appeared to be a mountain, but I didn't see a door open, but it definitely disappeared. Yeah. And I can show you on a map exactly where I saw that happen. It's probably the, the exact same spot. But the people up on the mountain, they all thought it just disappeared. They didn't see the door open either. And if I hadn't have been looking directly at that spot, I don't think I would have seen the door open either. Uh, but I managed to see the door open, and this helicopter flew in, and it just closed back behind it. Um, and it was, it was incredible um, to, to watch this. It was like watching an old Flash Gordon movie. I don't know if you ever saw those old Flash Gordon serials, but they had a part where this spaceship is flying along and it goes into this mountain and all these cowboys are chasing it on the horseback and uh, they just go up to the cliff and there's a cliff and they, and they don't know what happened. <laughs> I remember that from when I was a kid. Uh, and the reason I remember it is because uh, all of these things about underground bases and flying saucers uh, brought that memory back to me. Uh, John, I think that, uh, that people had better start paying attention to this and had better uh, begin to do something, at least think. I mean, thinking is a starting point, I believe. Um, but we're out of time. 
maybe we can do this another night, uh, do this again, because there's a lot of things that uh, maybe we should have talked about that we didn't get to. Um, would you consent to come back on, on another night? Sure, it's terrible. I can't believe the time has uh, passed as quickly, but uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of other uh, things that we could delve into. I sure wish I uh, shared your optimism, or I don't know whether it's uh, optimism or, or uh, realistic thinking, uh, but certainly people have got to wake up, and uh, uh, there's no question about that. Well, I, I think that our forefathers uh, had the right idea, but I also think that they did this as an experiment. And I think that through reading their writings, it's clear to me that they were, were well-versed in human nature. And they knew all the way back then that we would probably lose our republic. Uh, through our own abdication, ignorance, stupidity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I think the experiment's not over yet because it's not gone yet, and I think we can take it back. If people just could be brought to understand what it is that they're going to lose, then maybe they would be willing to do something about it. But all throughout history I see that uh, even our own revolution was only carried out by by less than 5% of the people who lived in the colonies. The rest were either solidly on the side of King George, or frankly, my dear, just didn't give a damn. <laughs> so uh, so we'll, we'll just have to see. I, you know, I don't know what my frame of mind is, except that I just absolutely refuse to give up. Um, and and, and uh, every time I get down and think about it, I just have to look at it. I just look at my daughter. And, the, and that's the end of that thought. I mean, I'm, I'm back on track again and clear sailing. John, thank you so much for being um, uh, our guest tonight. And, and thank you to our listening audience. Good night, and God bless you all.